and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim White, Digital Editor, and I'm joined today by Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, and Madeline Davies and Hattie Williams from our news team. Um, I think it was best to start with the biggest story of the week, Madeline. You've been covering uh, the row over the trying to choose a new Bishop of Llandaff. Uh, what's the latest there? Uh, so we know that on Thursday, the Assistant Bishop of Lambeth, um, David Wilborn announced that he intends to stand down um, on Easter Day. Um, he doesn't refer to it in his letter to clergy, but um, a couple of days before he wrote that, um, we spoke to him and he talked about a campaign um, that put pressure on him to resign, um, which is related, we think, to his support for the Dean of St Albans, uh, Dr Geoffrey John, um, who was one of the candidates for the Bishop of Landeth role. Um, he's accused the um, bishops of anti-gay discrimination um, because they've not now taken him forward um, as a candidate. And the bishops have um, have denied that there was any homophobia in the selection process, is that right? Yeah, so um, one of the early stages of finding a bishop is a meeting of the Electoral College, um, which is a mix of the bishops um, and also lay people. Um, there have been leaks from the Electoral College for Landaff, um, and those leaks have reached Geoffrey John, who understands that a number of homophobic comments were made. Um, that's been denied by um, the sort of president of the college, um, who has said that um, he made it very clear to the college that Geoffrey John's sexuality and the fact that he's in a civil partnership um, shouldn't preclude him from being considered. Mm. And of course, because the bigger picture here is that this is not the first time Geoffrey John has tried to become a bishop or been close to become a bishop, but his sexuality has seen, seemingly got in the way, is it? That's right. He was um, obviously famously um, nominated to be Bishop of Reading back in 2003 and following something of an outcry from Conservatives over the fact that he was, was openly gay and in a relationship, he withdrew his acceptance of that. And since then... He's reportedly been in the frame for other, other sees. Um, for example, Southwark, it was reported um, a few years ago. Um, so it keeps coming, the church seems to keep coming back to this person who most agree is, is highly gifted, um, uh, an outstanding intellect and priest of the church who, um, were, were it not for this, <clears throat> for his openness about his sexuality, would have been made a bishop by now. Um, and is it his openness about sexuality or is it because obviously um, he said that he's celibate and is that that's a factor as well yes I think what people are particularly angry about what no doubt he's angry about is that he's given assurances which everyone accepts that he lives by the bishop's guidelines so he's in a civil partnership which is allowed but his relationship is celibate mm. so um, to all intents and purposes he's, he's living by, um, by the rules so there's no actual reason why he shouldn't be a bishop. What some people have said, conservatives have said, is that he couldn't be a focus for unity because of, they say he hasn't repented for past actions or he hasn't, um, he's, he's so strongly on record with his views, how could he be a focus of unity for, for liberals and conservatives and all shades of opinion. One of the other things here is worth talking about is there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect between the diocese of Llandaff itself and the kind of broader church in Wales selection process. I mean, Obviously, we can't confirm this because this process is confidential, but the, the, the reports are that everyone from the Diocese of Flandaff was very, was unanimous in saying, we want Geoffrey John to be the new bishop. 
and therefore for that not to have been the case it must have been the representatives from elsewhere in the church in Wales who decided he couldn't be a focus for unity or whatever their reasoning was. Uh, it's, I guess it's all going to be a concern isn't it if there is a widening gap between the people of one diocese which had a, uh, a kind of famously liberal bishop, um, archbishop in fact for, for many years quite happily um, and the wider church in Wales. Just by saying that our leader this week speaks about the Geoffrey John and Landaff situation, uh, says, Can the situation be rescued with any scrap of dignity? Only if the bishop's bench acknowledges the huge injustice perpetrated against the candidate who, feels all the, who feels, fulfills all the criteria for the post and who convinced the diocesan representatives who interviewed him at length that he would bring wisdom, kindness, theological sensitivity, sound teaching and good humour to the post. Of course, also worth saying we're barely... Uh a few weeks after the last bishop selection row in the Church of England in this time uh, with Philip North and the of Sheffield. Um, Madeline, you, you've reported that some actually MPs are starting to come into light with the Philip North case. It feels like the Geoffrey John and Clandaff story is kind of breaking out of the church circles and into the, into the wider world. Yes, so um, in both cases, um, MPs have um, sort of added their voices to um, the the campaigns expressing concern about the processes. So um, there was a Sheffield MP who um, asked to meet with Philip North before he stepped down. Um, And in Wales, there's an open letter from nine MPs um, who've expressed concern um, about the process for Landaf. So it's yeah, it's certainly sort of um, widening the campaign beyond the church walls. I guess it underlines the fact both these cases do that the two kind of critical flashpoint issues for the church, the question of sexuality and the question of women in ministry, remain very much open wounds, um, even after, you know, three years after the Women Bishop Settlement of 2014. Yes, so we um, learned um, on Friday today that the archbishops have referred the whole Sheffield situation to the independent reviewer who was appointed um, after the Women Bishops um, measure was passed to sort of adjudicate um, conflicts that arose over that. So um, we're sort of awaiting the outcome of, of his decision. Would I be right in saying that's the first time a case has been referred to the reviewer? Uh, there's been several other cases um, coming from both sides, so traditionalists and um, women have, have both referred um, episodes to the reviewer who's, who's published reports. This is the first time it's um, sort of pertained to a bishop's appointment. So shortly before we went to press on Wednesday this week, uh, news started to come through of the um, terrible events in Westminster. Um, Tim, you sort of hit the phones to a few bishops um, as, as news was breaking who were at the scene, is that right? Who did you speak to? Yeah, that's right. So um, as soon as we kind of realised that there was an attack on, on Parliament itself, um, I tried to get in touch with uh, bishops in the House of Lords and managed to speak to um, the duty bishop. Uh, so every day there's a duty bishop who, who leads prayers, which opens this, this, the proceedings. Uh, which was the Bishop of Leeds, Nick Baines, spoke to him. Um, he had actually been inside before the, the attack happened and hadn't really known about it. But he then put me in touch with another bishop who was uh, in present House of Lords, the Bishop of Rochester, um, James Langstaff, who actually had been entering the House of Lords from outside as um, uh, the attacker kind of launched his assault at the other end of the building. And so he could tell me quite kind of graphically about how we've seen people screaming and running in all directions and the police 
swarming everywhere and he told me he basically realised something was going on and got himself inside the safety of the House of Lords as soon as possible. Obviously Westminster Abbey played a key role, am I right in thinking the parliamentarians were moved there presumably as part of the plan when there is a terror attack and then so the, the Abbey hosted them for a few hours? As yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, uh, while, while after they, initially they kind of locked down the chambers, so the bishops in the House of Lords and MPs in the chamber of the House of Commons were initially locked down, but after a few minutes, uh, the kind of the terror, anti-terrorist police moved them all out so they could start doing a room-by-room -room search of the entire Palace of Westminster. And uh, I think the bishops went to a kind of internal courtyard and waited there, but some MPs and some peers and staff were actually moved to Westminster Abbey just across the road. Um, while they were doing this sweep of um, of the Palace of Westminster, and there have been some interesting reports coming through of uh, uh, the, the clergy and the chapter at um, Westminster Abbey uh, praying with and kind of counselling. Obviously, some very shocked, um, probably quite fearful um, uh, parliamentarians. While the police were kind of checking, there was no no more danger, and they could return return across the road to the to Parliament. So, Madeline, you went to a conference last week in London about. Christianity and animals. In your story, it says um, people who feel like kooks found solidarity in numbers at this conference. What, what was it all about? So this was a conference that was organised by Sarks, which is a charity um, that um, is about Christians concerned for animal welfare. And there were about 200 people there, so it was, it was quite well attended. And it was a series of uh, mainly sort of theological reflections on how people can connect their love and concern for animals to their Christian faith. Um, that quote about kooks came from the American Baptist minister, uh, Dr Tony Campolo, um, who talked a lot about his own family's connection to their pets, um, but how people had been made to feel like kooks or weirdos um, because they loved an animal. And several other speakers talked about how actually people can feel quite bereaved when they lose an animal. Um, the fact that animals are really important, particularly if you're lonely, um, perhaps um, after retirement, when you don't actually see your family very often, animals can be a really um, important part of your life. And so it, it was kind of a message to say, um, you know, if you're a Christian who loves and cares for animals, um, A, that has a very strong foundation in the Bible, and B, um, you're not weird. You quoted Dr Margaret Adam from St Stephen's House um, speaking at the conference who, who said that um, animals would be part of the peaceable kingdom of reconciled creation. Was there a sense there that, that animals um, you know, have souls or will be redeemed? Um, so that was, was touched on in the conference. Um, the idea that, um, I think they gave an example from C.S. Lewis, who felt that animals that had a very close relationship um, with a human, so perhaps a dog, um, that relationship actually transmitted something of humanity to animals, um, which meant that animals in that category perhaps could be saved in the same way that humans are. Um, and there were the, the other examples really of the fact that there's a long history of Christian care for animals um, from some really sort of quite unusual um, stories from the saints, um, legends about resurrected goose and um, various other episodes, um, but also to the 19th century history of Christians setting up societies and charities to support animals. So they gave the example of William Wilberforce, who's obviously best known for the abolition of slavery campaign, um, was also extremely concerned about animal welfare. 
People also spoke about whether people should be allowed to bring animals to church. Um, I don't know what people think about that, but somebody here says people felt a sense of betrayal in leaving them at home. Mm. I mean, I, I was in a church recently for a, for a play group with my son, actually, and it, it did say no animals apart from guide dogs. I don't know if that's a standard policy in, in Church of England. Well, I think that probably churches. depends on how well behaved the, uh, <laughs> the dog in question is, um, which is probably why they say it's okay to have mm. guide dogs because they are trained. Um, but uh, certainly in, in, uh, in a story I wrote this week on uh, uh, a vicar from, uh, in Greater Manchester, and he called his, his own dog a tremendous partner in my ministry, a, a true Franciscan brother, he said. Um, and uh, the reason this news is because uh, his dog has been uh, helping young children, sort of five and six-year-olds, uh, gain confidence in their reading. So uh, Brian the dog, um, who's a, a five-year-old Jack Russell, um, he's been sort of sitting in their school and listening to these children read aloud and um, he's just a peaceful presence, I think. Mm. And um, as the head teacher, uh, Deborah Catchtor said, uh, this is sorry, this is of St Mary the Virgin Church of England Primary School in in Lee in Greater Manchester. Um, and she introduced the idea because she said, uh, reading to an animal is different to a human. The dog doesn't answer back or correct them, um, which I think there's something in that. Malcolm Geitz will be known to many of our listeners for his collections of sonnets that accompany the Christian year. His new book is called Mariner, A Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, published by Hodder. It was reviewed in our books pages by Richard Harries. I caught up with Malcolm Guite recently. I started by asking him about Coleridge's Christian faith, which has often been overlooked by critics. The popular view of him doesn't really take much cognizance of, of his faith and of the way that's deeply rooted and kind of almost watermarked through most of what he writes. Um, so I, I found him uh, a deeply compelling figure um, and uh, in fact when I was some years ago working on my book Faith, Hope and Poetry which was really a, kind of addressed to literary critics so that they would understand the spiritual depth of the poetry that they um, like to chop up and handle but it was also addressed to theologians and say look you need to engage your imagination. The imagination is a truth-bearing faculty. And I tried to work out how can I really ground that. And I read around and I suddenly realised that he was Coleridge, whom I'd known or thought I'd known all my life. And I began to read his, his essay on poetry considered as a fine art, the Shakespeare criticism, and then these magnificent chapters on imagination in Biographia Literaria. And I realised that there it is, staring you in the face. Coleridge roots our own capacity to know through the imagination with the divine imagination and he sees the imagination with which we perceive the world he, he, he says it is an echo in the finite mind of the eternal and infinite act of creation in the divine that's dynamite that's an amazing thing he's actually saying anybody engaged in a moment of artistic apprehension and intuition is echoing the way God made the world and helping to see it. Now, we've got a really big agenda at the moment, particularly when lots of people are leaving, as it were, or more mistrustful of more formal and organised religion, and turning more and more to the world of the arts to get their meaning. That's quite understandable, but of course they're missing out on something crucial. They're missing out on the core of the Gospel and on you know Christ's death for them. So we need to ask ourselves, how can we say, look, we're dealing with the same things? And here's a theologian who has rooted the imaginative and the artistic imagination in the divine creativity 
That's got to be important for us now in the 21st century. Coleridge did also have what you might call a strong evangelical conversion as well, and a very strong sense of, of, of um, not that he would use that term as a piece of churchmanship about him, but I mean in the sense that he, he really knew what it was to experience grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Um, was there a particular moment um, when that happened for him, C.S. Lewis style? Yes, there, there, I mean he was... There was a moment in the sense that, um, as you know, he, he had to deal with a lifelong addiction to, to um, opiates and um, tried to do so many times heroically and tragically and with failure in his own strength. And he did get to a point of complete rock bottom and a, a real prayer of the heart and a sense that Christ needed to come in and work in him and with him in his heart in a way, not just in his head. And that sense of radical dependence upon the grace of God, you know, and um, you know his strength being made perfect in weakness, very difficult lesson for someone of Coleridge's immense powers and talents to learn. You know, it's sometimes men of great gifts have to fall even harder and more stupidly than other people in order finally to be persuaded by God to accept help. And so he certainly went through that quite late in his life in around 1813-14 in a, a crisis that well, it was literally the end of 1813, beginning of 1814 in a, a crisis happily in a pub, I have to say, kind of crashed out in a pub called the Greyhound with a sort of massive opium addiction and survived rather than dying and in that survival he, he experienced what he called death, well crucifixion, descent into hell and resurrection and um, I think, therefore, his immense, already sophisticated theological knowledge was then grounded in a deep, radical personal conversion as well. And did he articulate that faith in, a, in conventional ways? Was he a communicant in the... Yes, he, he returned to, 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 um, to church. He was a communicant. I mean, he was more of, a, of an attender of sort of evening prayer and, and morning prayer, and he loved the, the prayer book liturgy. But he certainly was a communicant. I mean, his, his, I've read his personal annotations to the Book of Common Prayer. And there's a fantastic, his annotation to the prayer book communion service, he says, the best and perhaps for me the only preparation for the mystery of this sacrament is to read the whole of John's Gospel on my knees. And then he talks about what he finds in the Gospel, which is the logos that creates and sustains all things. It's very much that mariner, all things. So he locates that communion as a communion in in the word that speaks the cosmos, as well as the Jesus who died for me. Yeah, you've also said Coleridge's Victorian successors looked down in judgment on what they saw as the shipwreck of his life. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you think there are poets or artists today who, who the church today might be ignoring or neglecting because of similar judgments. Oh, that's a very good question. That's very interesting. Um, I think it almost certainly will be the case. Uh, and I think there are poets who have who have also felt repelled by the church and it were and have held themselves at a distance but who may well be writing things that are helpful to us. I mean to take a, somebody who certainly had a, a lived through a kind of hell in his life and could scarcely be said to have made a success of it but who I think most people would recognize as a spiritual writer perhaps a Coleridge of our time, Ted Hughes. Now I mean Ted Hughes uh, you could say is a kind of you know, you could be orthodox and strict and say Ted Hughes is a bit of a neo-pagan and, you know, kind of worships the earth and the, the goddess of eternal being and that kind of things. But Ted Hughes, without a doubt, is waking up a secular materialist world to something spiritual underneath their very feet. 
Coleridge, of course, was also accused of being a nature worshipper, and um, and yet there are there are moments. I just recently uh, read a uh, reread a, a poem, late poem of Ted Hughes called, I think it's called That Sunday Morning, or possibly just That Morning, and it's about fishing in in Alaska, and it's about a moment of complete transfiguration in which suddenly everything is golden, everything is lit from within, and it's not nature worship. It's a moment of the eternal glimmering and lucent in and through the temporal. It's a, it's a vision that Coleridge would have absolutely recognised. Larkin, curiously enough, who again, you know, appears to be contemptuous in his poem Church Going, but in the end gives one of the most beautiful accounts, you know, a serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognised and robed as destinies. You know, the church could do with a bit of that. How do you find being a, a priest and a poet, you know, in one sense a teacher of the faith, a guardian of mm. doctrine, but also mm. someone who explores, is open yeah. to questions? There, there can be. I mean, I hope at their best they go together. But one thing I've learned very quickly is that you cannot make the muse recite a catechism. You can't sit her down and, you know, say, I need everything you say to be theologically sound before I let you say it. Or she says, well, I'm going to have fun elsewhere then, aren't I? You know, I'm not. She comes to you when she's ready and she gives you the images. But I believe that she's blessed as much as, you know, any other of God's creatures and that uh, if I discern and wait, then something will lucent will come out of those. But I also have before me very strongly the example of George Herbert, who draws on the scripture and on the liturgy and almost has very, not a great deal to do just to coax out of them the poetry that's already there and give it an even more lucid and memorable form. And I don't take the sort of either ultra-romantic or ultra-modern view of the poet as the kind of strange, peculiar person in a corner who utters obscurely to themselves their own fractured vision. I mean, I think we've had enough of that. I think the poet is, if you like, a little bit the shaman of the tribe, a little bit the servant of the community, and it's part of the poet's job to articulate on everybody's behalf as well and as lucidly and as openly as possible the half-formed thoughts of the community. And that's why in Sounding the Seasons I'm really trying to write poetry that can reflect on the scripture or be in the liturgy and that anybody in any church can read and which is an invitation, a lucid invitation to expression and participation on the part of a community. I think it has both both blessings and, and pitfalls. I mean the obvious blessing is that you've got this beautiful rich material and you've got already a poetic liturgy into which onto which to float your poems. You're not sitting in a lonely bedsit, you know, just hacking away at your Mac to no one in particular. You have a community to work with, and that's just the way Homer was, you know, and you, in that sense, it's like being an ancient poet. It's wonderful. The danger, of course, is that you end up writing trite religious propaganda, and that you just, you know, you end up sort of with this awful thing that really should be on the inside of a tacky greetings card. And so you can go too far in the other direction. and. A lot of modern poets are so frightened of that that they won't even touch this with a barge pole. I do believe that there is a way in between. I do believe that you can be you can be lucid without being trite. I take strongly the view that I mean anything that makes it possible for me to write poetry at all uh, is is the conviction that all the words I use are older and wiser than I am, that they know more than I do, the images know more than I do. And I see my art as a poet as much more like arranging the tables around a sort of dining room and hoping to get some good conversation from my guests, who are the words, than knowing it all before it happens. So I don't include in collections or published poems that I think have got too much pre-design in them. 
I, if there isn't some element of gift or surprise to me in the act of writing the poem, then I generally regard it as not being a keeper. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.